0: Good evening everybody. We are in the third week of our Soul Matters um, series. Who's made any of these, these sermons through the series? Who's, who's made some of them? Are you finding it helpful? Okay, so Soul Matters deals with human issues. It deals with human problems. Um, if you didn't pick it up from what Dr. Belsham was saying, we're talking about depression today. Okay. And that sounds kind of heavy and deep and a little intense, but the reality is who in this room has ever had a low moment ever in your life? Who's had a bad day? Who's ever been sad? Okay, so it's a sliding scale of intensity for it to become depression. But if you saw those hands go up, that's every single person in this room. Every one of us has had a bad moment, a low moment, and a sad it's just part of being a human on the planet today and so maybe tonight you are here as someone who occasionally knows that you get a little depressed or you get a little anxious and maybe it's contained to one or two specific areas of your life maybe you are sitting in the room tonight and you have been diagnosed with clinical depression and you're good and you're taking your medication and you're seeing your therapist Maybe you are someone who has to care for somebody who's being diagnosed with clinical depression. Maybe you're just a friend or a family member and you're a little concerned that somebody you know might be depressed. Well, God speaks to all of us, no matter where we are in that situation. Psalm 16, verse 11. It'll happen. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And this is the promise of God to all of us, no matter where we find ourselves um, in the spectrum of dealing with depression. I want to start off by looking at an unusual scripture to read when we're talking about the topic of, descript- of, des- of depression, but it comes from Matthew chapter 26. Um, and we're going to start reading from verse 73. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up and follow with me. Matthew 26, starting from verse 73. Yes, there are quite a number of verses in the book of Matthew. Um, after, Okay, so this story starts um, with Jesus being caught in the garden, being arrested in the garden. Okay, and all his disciples scatter. And this is the story of Peter. And um, Peter told Jesus quite arrogantly, you know, Peter is so consistent in the Gospels. His character stands out. He is who he is, and he's a little dumb sometimes. But Peter very arrogantly says to Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. If everybody else deserts you, I will be here. (laughs) And Jesus, knowing all things, looks at him and says, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will have betrayed me. You will have betrayed me. Um, But Jesus also says to him, Peter, Satan has asked me for your soul that it may be sifted like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith will stand strong. And so we're picking up the story the third time Peter betrays Jesus in verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. If you turn over to, to Matthew chapter 27, we're going to start reading from verse 3. And this is another story of betrayal. This is Judas. Judas. And it says there, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. And so here is a juxtaposition of two men Two disciples of Jesus Christ, two men that Jesus called by name, two men that walked with Jesus, that ate with Jesus, that saw the same miracles, heard the same sermons, prayed with Jesus. And in this story, both of them are in distress. Both of them are in anguish. But how different are the endings? One commits suicide. Another one gets restored into full relationship. And as we go through our discussion on depression tonight, we're going to pop back in and out of these stories and see why were their endings so different. We are taking a little bit of poetic license with it, so just bear with us. But I think you're going to learn some interesting things. And so depression is a complicated matter. There is not just one reality to depression and to why you might end up in a place of depression however what is consistent with depression is that before depression there is anxiety and anxiety disorders and so that's your most common movement through um, whatever is of anxiety in our life that we leave undealt with can very well lead to depression uh, to depression and whatever is undealt with in clinical depression can lead to suicide So what is anxiety? Anxiety disorders begin in childhood, as early as that. Um, And the biggest cognitive system, the biggest thing that happens in somebody's mind with anxiety is that we start believing in catastrophic thinking. That broke our video earlier. But but catastrophic thinking is that no matter what comes your way, you absolutely believe that it's going to end in the worst thing possible. It's going to be an absolute catastrophe. And so whatever you're dealing with, whatever's coming away, even if it's trying to be helpful, you immediately just take it to the worst-case scenario. And that just increases and cements that, that anxiety. Um, there are physical symptoms that begin to manifest in our bodies when we fall into anxiety. Stress is one of them. And stress is that weird thing where it can cause anxiety, but it's part of being anxious, is being super-stressed. And that really does affect our physical body. It can impair our daily function by things like um, avoidance behavior, kids refusing to go to school, adults withdrawing from their social circles, sleep disturbances. It most certainly impacts our academic and our work life. We cannot perform as well, because so much of our energy is just taking up in stressing and panicking extreme subjective distress and feeling overwhelmed. This is anxiety. And you know, as we were putting the sermon together and we were talking about the different topics, that word overwhelmed came up over and over again. And that is that intense scale of just, I don't know what to do now. I have no resource, resources, inner resources to do anything. But the reality is is that anxiety is like a smoke signal that our system sends out to warn us that we are heading to a state of being overwhelmed. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, God, "God whispers to us in our pleasures." Whoops in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we really understand this in our physical bodies, don't we? Um, When it comes to being hungry or thirsty or needing sleep or really needing to go to the bathroom, we completely understand what's happening. And we understand that if we don't meet that need, something detrimental is going to happen to our health. And so very quickly, we find the most appropriate way to satisfy any one of those needs. Those sensations in our body are smoke signals telling us we need something, that if we keep denying it, something bad's gonna happen to us. And anxiety is literally our emotional and psychological megaphone, giving us a hint that something has gone wrong. But we aren't so good at picking up those signals, aren't we? Nintendo was talking about stress last week. and um, before that we'd spoken a little about that and, and I counsel a lot and what I've realized is us as human beings, when we say words, drop boxes drop down in every single mind. But it doesn't necessarily mean we understand what we're actually talking about. And so when we say the word stress, all of us go to some idea that we have of stress. But because we haven't labeled it and we haven't explored what stress feels like, we often don't realize we're stressed. And then we end in the most dramatic of places, because unlike knowing what hunger and thirst and really needing to pee feel like, we aren't sure what stress feels like. And so we push ourselves beyond the point that we should. And we have to do the work of figuring out um, what things feel like this is called self-awareness In case you were wondering Now the reality of our human lives is that everything feels like something If I ask you to think what hunger feels like who can you can imagine that immediately? if I ask you what's leading to really sleep, you know when you're watching Netflix and you just want to make the end of that last Episode before the cliffhanger, but you really know you should go to bed. Who, who knows that feeling? Yeah? But in the same way, stress feels like something. Success feels like something. Failure feels like something. Shame and regret and unforgiveness and bitterness feel like something. And when we catch the feeling, then the word helps. Otherwise, we just talk about stress. But I think stress means when my boss is literally about to shoot me in the head because I haven't handed in my work. Not realizing that stress is everything that's led up to that eventuality. Does that make sense to you? And so I need to capture the feeling and remember this feeling is stress. This feeling is bitterness. This feeling is shame. Because when that feeling comes up and that smoke signal comes to me, then I can put the word on it. And once I put the word on it, suddenly I can explore a whole lot of strategies that help me to deal with that. Does that make sense? So, emotions are amoral, okay? Do you know what that word means? They haven't got a good or a bad side to them until we invest something in them. Does that make sense to you? So, let me use money is amoral. Money is not good or bad. But the intent with which we use money can be very moral. If I'm buying weapons to kill people or to support human trafficking, money becomes bad. If I'm using my money to tithe or buy my kids ice cream, money becomes good. And so our emotions are amoral. There's this weird thing in the church where we have demonized emotion. God is full of emotion. The Bible tells us that He laughs and He cries, that He's angry, that He's happy, that He's joyful. Our God is full of emotion and we are created in His image. Have you ever looked at something in the world and just, welled up with joy or with tears or God created that so we would have that response because that's the response he had when he created it. And so the issue of emotions is this. Because they're amoral, what am I using my emotions for? If my emotions take me to a place of being overwhelmed and making desperate decisions that lead me into more anxiety, the emotion has been bad. But if my emotions alert me to the fact that there's a space in my heart that I'm neglecting, that there's a space in my heart I'm straight up ignoring, then they become good. And so you are gonna have feelings. It's what you do with them. It's what you let them drive you to that is the difference. Guys, you have feelings, whether you know they're there or not. And it's in all of us, And we have to find names. We've got to know the difference between what embarrassment feels like, what awkwardness feels like, what shame feels like. Because otherwise, all we're feeling is embarrassed, but we're taking it straight to shame. And so we have to find the nuances of our emotions and listen to what they're saying to us. Now, the concept of neuroplasticity... (laughs) teaches us that our thoughts and feelings can redesign our brains for good or, or bad. In, in brain studies in the world today, and I don't know the proper neuroscience, I guess, this, this term neuroplasticity is coming up all the time because they're discovering, they used to think that your brain was set and that was it. It just stayed like that forever. What they are now beginning to discover is that when we think and feel things, and again, I want to remind you that thinking and feeling is the same thing. In our Western understanding, we think that thinking is rational and feelings are emotional. They are the same thing. If you start thinking that I'm disrespecting you, how long before you feel it? If, you, if I am disrespecting you and you start to feel it, how long do you think to yourself, he's disrespecting me? Do you get where I'm going? They're the same thing. In fact, the Hebrew and Greek words translated as mind, soul, um, and spirit are often the same word. In the context of the scripture, we we pull it out into grammar, but in, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there was no difference between thinking and feeling because the one automatically creates the other. So in our brains, when we are thinking and feeling things, it affects our chemical balance. And the more we are, we are thinking that thing, the more entrenched that chemical balance becomes in our brain. But the good news is we can change the way we think and feel. And when we change the way we think and feel, guess what? Our brain responds. So we are not just locked in to anything. Another thing that we have to consider when we're talking about anxiety is this concept of ambiguity. Now the word ambiguity, ambiguous, literally means it's almost like two opposing realities existing in the same space. So two totally opposite things that we somehow contain in our our brain. Now in Christianity, again, we use this as a bad thing, because remember when Nintendo a while ago used a big word, um, psychological dissonance, and we were all very impressed. That's the bad side of ambiguity, because that's when we as good Christians come here and we sing and we cry and we love Jesus, but then for some reason we don't have a problem embezzling money from our boss or sleeping with our boyfriend or girlfriend. That's bad ambiguity. It's just a weird space where we can't see that the one is detrimental to the other. Does that make sense? But I believe that ambiguity was actually given to us by God as a gift to deal with living in this crazy world. You see, nothing in our lives is either all good or all bad. Think about that for a minute. Life doesn't happen in neat little packages. We don't draw a ticket and then, oh, for the next two years, your life sucks. (laughs) For the next six months, your life is amazing. That is just not how life works. The way I phrase it, driving in Joburg, is that life splatters across our windscreens, doesn't it? and some bits are chunkier and stickier than other bits. And it all just happens at the same time. But ambiguity allows us to figure out what's good, what's bad, and to live in the ambiguity of that. So so the best example I can come up with is if your grandmother dies the same day your baby girl is born, they don't cancel each other out. You don't just feel nothing. You mourn your granny. And you're rejoicing over your baby. And as you go on, you miss your granny, but you love watching your little girl grow up. You don't pick one or the other. They are both there. And you know full well that we have great capacity to hold those two extremes. But we need to be intentionally applying that to our life. Here's another thing. As I said, life doesn't just happen in neat boxes. And so we have to grasp this understanding of seasons. There is more than one season in your life. Last weekend, Tondo spoke, spoke to us about stress, and we learned that there's um, stress that comes just over certain periods, there's stress that's chronic, there's stress that goes on. Well, this is the seasons of our life. If you begin to realize, like we are in a stressed season right now, it's the end of the year, and everybody's trying to finish all the work they didn't do the whole year so they can go on holiday. Don't know why we do that to ourselves. But ambiguity helps us remember, but hold on, that's just for three more weeks. And then we hit the beach. And it allows us to put the appropriate level of intensity on things. In your life right now, you are in a three-week season, three season, in a three-month season, in a six-month season, in a five-year season. If you've had babies, you're in a 52-year season. <laughs> <laughs> Marsha's saying she knows what that means. And so I really want to encourage you to explore this idea of ambiguity and to really make your peace with it. And if we go back to the Judas story for a moment, John 12 verse 6, so this is the woman who comes to wash Jesus' feet with the expensive perfume in the alabaster jar. And Judas, when he sees this happen, he says this very spiritual sounding thing. He says, why did you let her do that? We could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. But John writes this. He says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. And so can you see that Judas had already entrenched attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors into his life that were negative? And this is why when he watched Jesus heal, when he listened to those sermons, he filtered it through beliefs he already held. And he didn't let it change him on the inside. He just heard what he wanted to hear. Peter, on the other hand, went swung between extremes of Wash all of me <laughs> to betraying Jesus, but something was happening on the inside. He had some kind of neuroplasticity that was allowing him to find a new reality, a new truth. So Judas's thoughts were already set in his mind. So he believed you could steal from the coffers. All the stuff on the the, the, the words on the top are what he should have done. <laughs> The words following the blocks are what he did. So instead of saying no to stealing from the coffers, he said what? Yes. Instead of saying no, we shouldn't betray Jesus for money, he said yes. Instead of saying I should seek forgiveness, he said I'm not going to seek forgiveness. And that led to his suicide. So we know that there is a theological reality to it, that Satan absolutely entered Judas, which Luke 22 verse three says. But this is also a story of a human struggling with his spaces and not finding help. He made decisions that led him to that space. He made them over and over. And I think it was easy for the enemy to fill him at the end. But it also led to a whole bunch of believing lies because Peter portrayed Jesus as much as Judas did. And yet, Peter is restored, and Judas goes to his death by his own hand. And so, what is depression? Medically, it's reduced interest or enjoyment of activities, plus any four of the following. Diminished ability to think or concentrate markedly reduced energy levels, sleep disturbance, decreased or increased appetite or exercise, weight gain or loss, being restless, either super agitated or totally slowing down, feelings of guilt or excessive worthlessness, recurrent thoughts of death, suicidal thinking or suicidal behavior. And we've got to be honest about this because that thing of suicide always comes into depression. I've, I've been depressed twice in my life, um, in my early 20s and in my early 30s. And in my early 20s, suicide thoughts definitely came to play. I got very fascinated by kitchen knife wear. Um, I didn't do anything, but I thought about it a lot. I wasn't sharp enough back then to actually ask for help. And I was in a slightly intense spiritual situation where we didn't believe in asking for help. So although people around me could see something was really wrong, they just kept praying for me. Praise the Lord, they did, it brought me through. But I really wish I had gone for help. I, I wouldn't have been stuck there for as long as I was. And I wouldn't have been as damaged by it as I ended up being. But the suicidal thing is just a reality. And if you heard Pastor Nicola's testimony from her chronic pain, Um, the depression that came to her, there's a space where suicide, if the point is to end the pain, (laughs) suicide is an option. It's actually a very good option in the sense of ending the pain, but it is by no means ever the best option because there is so much other stuff we can do to end the pain. It's harder, it's more difficult, but it's better. And as Nicholas said that morning, and I want to repeat it, not one of you, will make the world better by leaving it. We need you. There is value in you. There are gifts and potential inside of you that we have to foster. And so if you're having suicidal thoughts, if you're thinking about suicide like I was, talk up. When I finally told a good friend of mine that I was thinking this way about kitchen knives, he started weeping. He just sat there next to me and he just started weeping. And for the first time in about seven months, it dawned on me the effect that that would have on other people. And I hadn't seen it, but I realized I was loved. The issue I was dealing with is that I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel like I had a family. Somebody this morning, I think it was Vanessa, did the offering this morning, and she was talking a little bit about a, a, a very bad patch in her life where um, her boyfriend passed away, she lost her job, it was all just crazy. And she was saying, and it kind of echoed, I'd never used the words, but she said, I was too much of a Christian to take my own life, but I kept asking God if He would take it for me. <laughs> and that was me. I was this good Christian. I remember sitting behind in that, by that pillar right there one night, and I said, God, I just wanna come home. And, for, and that is one of the few times I've heard God's voice, because He said to me, no figure this out. I thought he didn't like me. Now I know he loved me dearly. (laughs) And so that always comes to play in depression. These symptoms must persist for at least two weeks or more and cause significant impairment to be considered classical clinical depression. And so the contributing factors to depression are really complicated. This is the biophysical model. And you can see the three circles and how they all kind of connect together any one of these can cause depression but the reality for us as human beings is that most probably we are mixing and matching from all three of them and so the biological effects are genetic if there's a history of depression in your family be aware of that understand that know that and figure that out chronic pain and tando gave a testimony last week of his pain and how that led to some depression substance abuse certain medications Hormonal issues, like postnatal depression. Then we've got psychological and spiritual contributors. Anxiety, anger, trauma, unforgiveness, regret, doubt, procrastination. You know, the thing about unforgiveness and regret is very interesting. Those are the only two things that keep us locked in the past. Unforgiveness is I will not let go of what happened. Regret is I want to go back and change it all the time. We have absolutely no control over what happened. But we have so much control of who we're gonna be going forward. And then social, attachment disturbance, bereavement, abuse. In our society, abuse is rampant. The statistics are ridiculous. Loneliness and disconnection. And that is something that just keeps increasing. And guys, we've got to work on it. We've got to learn how to be more connected than we are. And so what depression looks like Um, So this is a scan of two brains. There's a non-depressed brain and a depressed brain. In the non-depressed brain, all the yellow and white is excitement and doing stuff and thinking and just being a human. And you can see in the depressed brain, there's a lot less of that, isn't there? So much less of it. And so for those of us who maybe, or those of you who haven't ever experienced depression, this is important to understand because it comes back to the sense of overwhelmness. You might be sad, you might be having a low moment but you're not overwhelmed. And so I want to use a stupid example, but this is an example that was true for me in that first bout of depression. I loved drinking tea back then, it was super comforting. I was depressed over winter, so hot drinks were very comforting. And I remember one afternoon just really feeling so bad and thinking maybe a cup of tea will help. But the effort of actually having to make a cup of tea was too much. It was just too much. When I eventually got to the point of putting the kettle on, I then remembered I didn't have milk, and that was the end of it. I had no inner resource to figure out how to get milk, so I just lay on the floor and cried. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But it's not, it's real. And so when we have depressed friends and depressed family, that's what's going on. They're not making it up. This is what their brain looks like. And apparently you need a lot more than that activity to make a cup of tea. It's real. And this is also why medication helps. Medication is not the devil. Medication is not second-hand healing. Please, somebody clap. (laughs) Can I explain something to you? When I do this, you you, you all turn into this beautiful soft focus blur of, of, you know, mosaic color. Now imagine me driving at night. I'm about to fall off the stage if I don't put my glasses on. I have to wear these things. I think I look way prettier without them. But the world looks way prettier to me with them. I have to use them. I can fight against it as much as I want. And yes, I pray for my eyes all the time. But I have a real condition that I had to get some operations for so I didn't split my corneas. And I'm really grateful for that and it's improving. Maybe by the time I'm 70, I'll have enough cornea to actually do laser surgery. I might be seeing better than I've ever seen in my whole life. But up until then, I have to wear these things. It's just a part of my life. Why are we so weird about medication? If it helps, do it. Two years ago, somebody invited me to go with them to see their psychiatrist at Tara. Um, They were convinced they needed to come off their medication. I was not that convinced. (laughs) Neither was their psychiatrist. So I got a phone call saying, will you come? And it felt a bit like being called into the principal's office. And I was like, oh my word, what's going to happen? When I got there, it was amazing. This secular Jewish psychiatrist said to me, his faith is so important to him, and you are so important to him because you're part of his faith, and you have such a positive influence on him. So please, that's why I've invited you to come because I want you to understand as well. And when we started talking, a whole bunch of other stuff opened up that he'd never told me. And the medication he was trying to stop wasn't causing any of the effects that were causing him problems heart disease and diabetes were. It had nothing to do with the mental illness he was dealing with. But it blew my mind to watch these these guys negotiate and they started talking, his team started talking, well maybe there's a better medication and they started finding things and coming up with solutions. This is modern psychiatry. It's not like the 60s where there was one pill and you all took it and regardless of how it made you feel, you just took it for life. And there's no more shock therapy, (laughs) praise the Lord. But what I'm trying to say is that if you have to take medication, well, figure it out. Work with your team and find the right cocktail that gives you enough energy to live, that gives you um, an ability to sleep, because medication helps that. It means that when you want a cup of tea, you can just get up and make it and not lie on the floor and cry. And for those of you who aren't taking medication, understand that that's what it's about. And so dealing with anxiety and depression, (laughs) go to Jesus first. He loves you so much. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.'" You know, I've learned in my life dealing with suffering and pain and, and I've had to do a little bit of that. That it's my choice what yoke I want to pick up. I can either pick up the yoke of being perfect, striving for perfection, looking strong, looking good. I can pick up the yoke of I'm going to be healed immediately and my faith is going to pull me through. Or I can pick up the yoke that says I'm going to take the time to find Jesus in the middle of this and then I'm going to let him carry me through it. And it's my choice which yoke I will have. When suffering comes my way, I'm a human. I want to fight. I start pushing into that first first yoke, but I've done it enough to realize all that happens is things take way longer and are way more nightmarish. You see, we can't make Jesus live up to our expectation or our desires. We can't. We can only know him for who he is, and he will not be anything other than who he is. His identity is so set. There's not a touch of insecurity in him. He doesn't care what you write on his Instagram page. He knows who he is, and that's who he is. And and who he is in this space is a very present help in our time of need. That's Psalm 46, verse 1. He is a God who is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those crushed in spirit. That's Psalm 34, verse 18. See, we can only access Jesus through humility and faith by grace. And here's the problem. Humility, faith, and grace are the most vulnerable things any human can ever be asked to do. Somebody, somebody clap, yeah. That's why we don't know how to do it. In our world, humility, humility just gets you killed. But it is a godly character. And this is the thing, I can use my faith to bulldoze myself through something or I can just sit with Jesus and let him hold my hand until I feel better. Healing and saving takes time. And if you're not into the time, you're gonna just keep coming back and keep coming back and keep, I, I will tell you this as a 48 year old, is take the time the first time. Do it in six months instead of nine years. Seriously. Learn to sit with Jesus in your pain and find him right there. And so this leads us to the first thing we have to do if we're going to deal with anxiety and depression is we have to face the facts. You know, faith is good. We believe the best. But there's a process to life. Um... Ooh, sorry, that's the wrong, that should say Romans 4 verse 9. (laughs) And this is talking about Abraham, and it says, Without weakening in his face, he faced faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promise. Face the facts. There is no lack of faith in admitting the problem. You are not speaking death over yourself if you actually say, I have keratoconus. It is a fact. <laughs> the devil is not got any more power over me because of it. And so I pray for my eyes, but guess what? I wear my glasses because I don't want to kill anybody on the road. So face the facts, but then understand that God is bigger. God is greater, and then trust Him in the process. The second way we're going to deal with anxiety and depression is that we need to live wisely. Whatever helps, do it. Exercise, rest. So important, rest. I'm always going on about sabbatical, aren't I? Rest, rest, rest. Next year, we're actually doing a whole four-week series on rest. Make sure you get to it. Eat and drink responsibly. Manage your din- digital consumption, he says while he reads his sermon from his iPad. <laughs> Keep your key relationships healthy in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friends. Keep your relationships healthy. And make sure you have healthy, encouraging people around you. When you're feeling bad, you've got to give a little less time to those other needy people. Keep loving them. But you've got to make sure you, you are healthy and that you are in healthy relationships. Number three, to deal with anxiety and depression, we need to get the help we need. Ask for help. You see, shame kills us. I was ashamed. You know, when when my um, optometrist told me, I don't know what's going on, you seem to have multiple astigmatisms, and I think it might be keratoconus, I got in the car and I cried like a baby because I felt ashamed. I felt like I had done something wrong. And then I had to go to an ophthalmologist and have my corneas scraped and sunburned. <laughs> yeah, it was horrible. But I had to submit to that. I had to push through the shame to go, I need help and I really want to do what I need to do. And it would have been a lot easier and a lot less painful just to pretend like I could wear glasses without that intervention. So if you need to get admitted to hospital, go again. Spend three weeks in hospital instead of nine years later. Get help from professionals, ask for counseling, do therapy, speak to a pastor, speak to somebody you know. Get onto medication if you need it. As long as you're not using the medication to numb things and to hide away more, it's gonna help. And that's why you have to do medication and therapy. Because then somebody can look at you and say, I think you're in denial, so let's actually deal with the issues. And then deal with your shame. You know, as Christians, oh gosh, my faith has failed. Uh, but God hasn't. Your faith failing really is irrelevant. God never does. Your, you know, we sometimes we have faith in our faith. That's called idolatry, straight up. And God ain't fooled by none of that. So don't be faith person, be Jesus person. And deal with your shame come and talk to me, I have dealt with shame, I will help you, or this entire front row here, lots of you, talk to people, and that's how we get rid of shame, is we actually just talk about it, and then we realize we aren't the only person in the universe doing it, or feeling it, or being it. And then lastly, to deal with anxiety and depression, we need to stay connected to God and to others. And ultimately, this was one of the biggest differences between Peter and Judas. In his darkest hour, Peter managed to stay connected to the other disciples, and that led him back to Jesus. So this is after Jesus is resurrected, and Peter is ashamed. It's before Jesus reinstates him. And he is with his friends. And he says to them, let's go fishing. (laughs) And they said, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. But they were together. Shame keeps us out of connection, it keeps us out of relationship. However you ended up in depression, we love you and we want you, (laughs) and we're there for you, and we're not blaming you. And so I feel like there's two commitments, there's two responsibilities for us as a community. The first one is personal, but it's also for us as a community, is that we have to ask for help. If there's a problem, put your hand up and say so. As I said last week, We are called to be prophetic. We cannot be psychic. It's a sin. And so until you tell us what's going on, we don't know. And ask for help. That's practicing vulnerability of people you trust. Come and talk to a pastor. Talk to a professional. Talk to a friend, a family member. But say that you need help. And let's start this journey doesn't mean you don't have faith. It doesn't mean you aren't trusting God. It's just that you are facing the facts and you are saying, I want the strategy that's going to pull me out of this. So can we commit as a community, as individuals, that we are going to ask for help? And then the second responsibility is that when we hear somebody asking for help, we're going to listen. We're not going to rebuke demons out of them. We're not going to quote 79 scriptures at them. We're going to sit down, we're going to look them in the eye and we're going to say, what's going on? This is called empathy. Empathy is when I look at you and I can put myself into your shoes. I will never understand but I can begin to imagine how I would feel if I was going and then I treat you like I wanna be treated. That's called empathy and that's all that is required. That is literally 50% of a person's healing happening right there, just having somebody who listens to them and doesn't think they're crazy. And then you keep listening, but then you speak truth and you encourage, and you you encourage them to go ask for the help they need. Can we make that commitment as a community? And that's all I have to say. (laughs) God bless you.